welcome back to the Cinefessions podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Shawin, and joining me today, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? I'm Chris Ransom. And I'm Ash Collins. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining me. I started listening to um, another podcast, and they were doing the Friday the 13th series, and so I've been watching through the Friday the 13th movies. And that new Steelbook you got? Yep, exactly. Thanks to Chris visiting me, he talked me into purchasing, finally, the Friday the 13th complete collection on Blu-ray, and so I've been watching through those again on Blu-ray. I'm only through Friday the 13th Part 3, which I watched earlier today. I, like Those are the three films that I know the most, because I've watched them the most, and so I'm really excited to get into 4 through 10, and then Freddy vs. Jason and all that, so... It's a fun series. So today we're going to talk about our first director's retrospective, and we're going to use Neil Marshall. I'll be honest, Neil Marshall has been a director that I've wanted to do a retrospective in one way or another for like the past three years, ever since I started doing podcasting for um, the first website I I, uh, wrote for. Uh, I've always been interested in doing like a podcast dedicated to his film. So I'm really excited that you guys agreed to do it. And so thank you for that. And I'm excited to get talking here because of the fact that I think we're going to have very different opinions on probably all four of these films or at least three of the four films. And uh, according to your Twitter, recent Twitter comments. So we'll see. <laughs> I want to put a warning out there up front. This is not going to be like our normal podcast where we try to stay spoiler-free. These director retrospectives are going to be filled with spoilers. On each of the four films, I am going to talk about the entire plot from beginning to end, so they will have major spoilers on all four films. So if you've not seen one of these films, you know, check the show notes so you can skip that film. Definitely recommend seeing the movies before you listen to the podcast, though, in this situation. Before we jump into the reviews of these ones, I kind of want to talk about our history with these movies so you that you guys know where we're coming from. Ash, what is your history with these four movies? Have you seen them? How many times? Thoughts on them before you went into these reviewings? Anything like that? I had only seen three of the four before we went into this. I'd caught uh, Centurion on Netflix uh, a year or two ago, I think. I've only seen it uh, once before we rewatched it. I really like that one. I liked Michael Fassbender's casting. He's fantastic in pretty much anything I've seen him in. So I, I liked him for that uh, and some of the other actors in it. Uh, I missed Doomsday. I don't know whether when I missed it. I remember either wanting to rent it or something along the lines when it first came out on video, but I missed it. The Descent, I saw a while back. I've seen that a couple different times. So I, I actually kind of like that one. Uh, it's an interesting take on the, you know, the subterranean horror thing that was around during that time when he put that out there was another one or two that kind of followed the same vein uh you know like a companion films that another studio put out um i liked descent better because it was a lot grittier and then uh obviously dog soldiers was the first one of his i'd seen i actually i have fond memories of this one just because one of my friends from college actually got me into this one uh well she was in college at the time i was working she brought it over one day. She's like, you have to watch this. And uh, so we watched it and we had a great time. But I was watching it with a friend who was really into it. So it was a lot easier to get through. Uh, <laughs> it's got a couple actors in it that I like, too, which helps. Reviewing it, though, it it has moments that are just kind of like, eh, I, okay. Uh, but like when we when I was watching it through the first time with my friend, it was a blast. We had a great time. We just you know the the, the cheesiness and everything. We just kind of overlooked some of the stuff and then just went with it because we you know we both loved the material and loved the idea. So awesome. And what about you, Chris? What do you use your your history with these films? Well, I, I've seen them all before. Okay. Uh, well, you know my stance on I think all of them uh, previously. 
I know. Yeah, we talked a little bit about uh, Dog Soldiers in the Descent. I don't. I don't remember talking anything about Doomsday and Centurion because we. I haven't really. I hadn't seen them. So. Okay. Yeah, I've seen Dog Soldiers once. I remember buying it in like a deep discount, like fall sale that was like thirty percent off or whatever they used to do. Mm -hmm. And like everyone was talking about like how awesome the movie was, and it it wasn't. I was really let down. Um, Had only seen it once before the other day when I watched it again, and. Descent, I've seen like three or so times. Okay. And I mean, I'm mixed on it. And then I've seen Doomsday once, and I saw Centurion once before, so. Both of you guys have seen all these movies before we decided to do this podcast, so. I'm coming at it from a little different angle. I've seen, I bought Dog Soldiers back on DVD real cheap and watched it once way back when, and I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. And then The Descent, I saw in theaters. I may have seen it in theaters twice, and then I've seen it, I don't even know, three or four, maybe even five times since on uh, DVD and Blu-ray. I really enjoy it. I often call The Descent one of my favorite horror films of the past 20 years because it does so much right, and I really, really loved it. And I'll never forget that first experience in theaters, kind of like Signs, which you can laugh at me all you want, but Signs scared the shit out of me when I first saw it in theaters, and so did The Descent. And then because of those two movies, I've always really enjoyed Neil Marshall and I've always admired what he was able to do with those two. And so I've always had Doomsday and Centurion on my like to watch list because I always wanted to say that Neil Marshall is one of my favorite directors, but I hadn't seen his latest two films. So I kind of felt, you know, false saying that. And so I bought Doomsday and Centurion on Blu-ray a while back and I just never got around to watching them. Um, and so that's why this, this podcast was a good excuse to watch both of them. And so on my rewatching of, of Dog Soldiers, which we can, uh, jump into now, I guess, um, Dog Soldiers is a 2002 film. It is, all four of these films are actually written and directed by Neil Marshall. So something to keep in mind because you don't see that often. But in this situation, all four are directed by him. This one is starring Kevin McKidd, Liam Cunningham, and Emma Cleesby. And let me give you a plot synopsis here. And again, there are major spoilers, and I'm not going to warn you again for the rest of these four films, but uh, do keep in mind we are going to talk about the entire plot. And so uh, if you haven't seen it, you might want to switch off now. So in Dog Soldiers, a group of six British Army soldiers led by Private Cooper are dropped into the Scottish Highlands on what they believe to be a training mission. They eventually come across the remains of a Special Forces squad that was supposed to be part of the same training mission. There's only one survivor from the Special Forces squad, Captain Ryan, and he keeps yelling about the fact that there was only supposed to be one of them. Captain Ryan is seriously wounded, so the soldiers try to salvage the weapons and find a way out of the woods. Unfortunately, though, an unseen force starts attacking the soldiers, killing them off as they try to find shelter. They then come across Megan, who says that she is a zoologist, and takes them to a safety of an old house. Night sets in, and Megan reveals to the soldiers that they are being attacked by werewolves. At the same time, these werewolves destroy the only means of their escape by ripping apart Megan's car. The werewolves continue to attack through the night, and the soldiers are eventually run down to their last rounds of ammunition, so they decide that their best course of action will be to make a run for it. So after Captain Ryan explains to the group that he was actually sent there by the government to try and capture a werewolf for testing, he turns into one himself thanks to the wounds he suffered earlier. And then after a failed attempt at blowing up a barn where the soldiers believe the werewolves are hiding, Megan reveals her true werewolf form and the last remaining soldiers are forced to kill her or be killed, with the only survivor being Private Cooper and then Megan's dog, Sam. So that is Dog Soldiers in a nutshell. And 
one thing that Dog Soldiers really reminded me of, I don't know if either of you guys had a chance to or even knew it existed, but uh, Neil Marshall's first listed film on IMDb is a short film called Combat. It's about an eight minute long film, which you guys can find on YouTube if you just search for Neil Marshall's Combat. Um, have either of you guys seen that by any chance? I have not. Okay. I mean, frankly, it's not very good. But what it is is like this weird bar scene, but there's no dialogue at all. Instead, it's just war, like sounds of war, like gunshots going off, uh, explosions, tanks rolling up. Like you hear all these different things. There's just sounds of war over this bar scene. It's really strange, but you can definitely see that same grittiness and rawness that's in Dog Soldiers in combat. Let me just talk about my initial impressions of dog soldiers at the beginning there we have that first scene where it seems like more of a throwaway scene than anything that opening scare scene that all horror movies have to have you have that couple in the woods and then um the one the guy's gifted a a silver a pure silver knife as a gift from his girlfriend and then they you know go into their tent to make love and then all of a sudden the, the tent's being opened and this werewolf comes in and rips apart the girl and takes her away. And then the the film jumps to two hours earlier and we see what we will come to learn is Private Cooper, who is played by Kevin McKidd. We find uh, Private Cooper is running through the woods. It looks like he's trying to hide from someone. And then we find out that it's another training mission for him to try to be like initiated into this, this uh, special forces squad, which is led by Captain Ryan, who's played by Liam Cunningham. And then out of nowhere... Captain Ryan saying how great he is, you know, you just moved to the head of the class. Now, here's this random dog that's with us. Kill this dog. But Private Cooper refuses to. He won't kill the dog. He says, you know, it's not that I can't kill the dog. It's that I'm not going to kill this dog right now for no reason. And even on this second viewing, like, I understand a little bit what's going on there. But that scene always just seems odd to me. It, it does seem a little odd, but I kind of took it away as the commander's just a being a dick, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's he's looking to prove you know prove his point and get make sure that this guy can do what he needs him to do. But the way he's going about doing it, I I don't I don't have any military experience, but it just seems really prickish and and it comes across that way. Right. But. Uh, I think it's awkward for a reason, but the only the only reason I think to really include that is so when we hook up with Cooper and the commanding officer again, they have some history that we've seen. But right. I don't know. If, I don't even know if it's really necessary. I mean, we could have gotten that in just a few lines of dialogue later in the movie. Yeah, it feels more like a, a character building scene than anything else. Because we understand who, you know, we understand that Captain Ryan is this prick and we understand that uh, Cooper has morals and he has values that he's not willing to break just because this guy tells him to. So then we get past that and we're back with the Private Cooper. He's now with his original troop and um, they're here for this exercise. So, Ash, what are your what are your initial thoughts here? It struck me as very aliens, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the, the camaraderie and, and the way they interact with each other, it the way they film it. You know, like Hollywood style, you know, and I don't know, not having been military, I don't know if that's how they just react or, you know, but it's just the camaraderie is there and it's great. I love that. The, the way they interact and stuff, it's 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 neat. And at the same time, it's I think it's good to, to get us into the characters, you know, and get to see everything. Uh, you, you get to know them before before all hell breaks loose, basically. Yeah, and that's what I liked about it. And it kind of it kind of goes on a little long because you have, you know, there where you first meet the characters and then they, they have that campfire scene where you're where they're talking about like what they're scared of and things like that. And then all of a sudden this cow drops down from nowhere and he's all eaten up and destroyed and everything. And so that, that's when they realize that something is wrong. That's kind of like the first, 
the first moment from this is a training mission to what the fuck's going on here. So I thought that was an interesting, interesting transition. Chris, what are some of your initial thoughts on Dog Soldiers? I, I was pretty bored, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just didn't like the characters. And thankfully, what, what happens next makes me very happy. So <laughs> even, the, even the opening with the tent, the tent scene just felt really bizarre to me. Well, that and I think the werewolf's head looks really awkward in a lot of scenes. <laughs> okay. It just looks overly large. <laughs> that kind of bothered. Like at t- I mean, it looks great, but it looks really big. <laughs> I think that's something that kind of stays consistent, though, because like when the when the werewolves are trying to later on in the film, after they get to the house, the werewolves are trying to like bust through the door. The werewolf just towers over the uh, troops like Cooper, who's trying to hold the door shut, like their arms are just at the very top of the door. So you can get this sense that these werewolves are just much bigger creatures than than the humans. And I like that because it gives them more power, more uh, fear in that. Right. I get that. But the heads just look really enormous for the body. Okay. <laughs> That was all. Just, just um, sometimes, not always. The the one thing that struck me actually is they were very reminiscent of the werewolf design from the Howling. Oh, okay. I haven't seen the Howling, so I, I didn't make that connection. Yeah, the, it's the same same shape, silhouette type of thing. Because uh, you never really see them in the Howling. I mean, it's they they use the the movie trick thing kind of just like they did in dog soldiers where you see them, but you don't really see them type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the effects are a little more uh, believable. I think in, uh, in, in the howling dog soldiers, I, my problem wasn't with that. The, the head was too big. It was the, the jaws never looked particularly good. <laughs> any of the shots. I mean, they try to make them look pretty believable, like drool or whatever on them, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Those always just came across as not shape right, but I mean, they're werewolves. How do we know what they're shaped like? But yeah, yeah. Seemed off. Yeah. Talking about the werewolves themselves and how you see the werewolves, there's just some, there's some awesome moments. I thought they were awesome moments where. You just have the you just have the silhouette of the werewolf. Like there's one moment in particular where I remember the you have all this backlight shooting on to the the werewolf, and so all you see is this black silhouette, the outline of the werewolf, and it was very menacing to me. I really I really liked that shot. I, I really liked what the you know cinematographer and what Neil Marshall are able to do with this you know low budget werewolf that they are able to create. I like what they were able to do with it. So the film didn't, for me at least, it didn't feel like a low budget horror film. I like the werewolves quite a bit actually. My only other point of reference that I can really come up with right now would be an American Werewolf in London, and then Cursed, which I've seen many times, which everybody hates the Wes Craven movie. But I don't hate it, but everybody else does. I don't. I don't mind Cursed. Okay. There you go. See ya. another another <laughs> fan. Right. Yeah. Oh, is, hey. Isn't it written by uh, Kevin Williamson also? Yeah. The guy from Scream. That it was. So, Ash, you mentioned a little bit about the camp factor in it. Do you want to elaborate on that at all or, or talk about any specific moments? The dog chewing on the guy's intestine. Uh, um, <laughs> the sheer amount of blood. I just remember what you're talking about with the guy pulling on the with the dog pulling on the intestine. Yeah, and the, the sheer amount of blood coming out of that truck when they open the door or when the werewolf kills the guy in the one truck. And it's just like really uh, I, it was like army of darkness pit of doom blood spray just everywhere and i'm yeah. like no uh, no yeah it just it doesn't work and it, there was just a couple of them like that i mean for the it it was too much I and mean, if they toned it down just a little bit i could have dealt with it but it was just like wow really 
<laughs> I don't know. I, those are the two that really stuck out the most in my head. And that overuse of blood is probably something that we'll continue to talk about as we go through Neil Marshall's filmography, or not maybe too much use of blood, but just a, a vast use of blood. Yeah, he does like his blood. At least it's a realistic color. I will give it that much. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what do you what do you think of the story structure, the way that the story unfolds with Captain Ryan turning into the werewolf and then, he, you know, he reappears at the end because he's obviously the same werewolf. He's got the whatever it is stuck through him, like the piece of wood stuck through him or whatever. Um, and then you have the Emma Cleesby character, Megan, turns out that she is a werewolf. Any any thoughts on that at all? It was a little predictable, I thought, but. I have to say, once the movie hits a Night of Living Dead episode there near the end, it gets much better. I'm much more able to tolerate it. As soon as they hit the house, I mean, it's very, like like you said, it's very Night of Living Dead. They're just trying to, you know, board up the house and, and protect the house. And I just feel like the film teeters, like it can go one way or the other. Like I'm either going to be very bored or I'm going to be entertained. And I think Dog Soldiers works for me because I I never went to that board line because of the fact that the I like the dialogue. I like the characters. I know, Chris, you said you didn't like the characters. I don't know. I thought they were all unique enough. You have the one play, one guy who's obsessed with uh, football. He's missing, you know, whatever it was, England versus Germany or whatever, the football match of a lifetime. You have the private Cooper is, you know, he just seems like a genuinely uh, good person and is always trying to, um, you know, rally the troops. You have Sergeant Harry Wells, who I just thought was a lot of fun to watch. I liked when he got drunk and he was just humorous. I don't know. He made me laugh on multiple occasions. And I thought the acting overall, I didn't remember this from the first time of viewing it, but the second time viewing it, I thought it was, and you guys might laugh at me or disagree with me, but I thought it was awesome. Every actor really went for it. They played it 100% real and they just went for it at all times. And I really enjoyed it. Liam Cunningham, you know, as Captain Ryan, his character was a little one dimensional in that he was just always pissy and always an asshole. But I think aside from him, the other characters were really engrossing and I really enjoyed them. The camp factor didn't come from the acting per se. It was the setups. That's one of the things I, I will say about yeah, I think all of his movies actually. It he he gets the actors to deliver and make the scenes believable. Right. You know, they're never they're never so cheesy or you know the lines aren't delivered cheesily. They you mm-hmm. know they're delivered so that you believe what's going on there. So there's that. There's I do some like great that. lines in this too. Yeah, there oh, is definitely. Oh, what the hell's the best one has to be? I hope I. I hope I give you the shit, you fucker. Yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> that's it. And then, like, uh, a little uh, factoid, they actually wanted to put that line into Doomsday at one point when they're, they have, like, the cannibal scene and whatnot. It was supposed to be, the line was supposed to be in there, but then they cut it out because they thought it would be too self-referential and no one would, uh, no one would like it, so they got rid of it. But I thought that was hilarious. I love that line. That's great. That would have been great. I know. I would have, I mean, like, I feel like us three would have enjoyed the shit out of that line if it was, you know, in Doomsday, but they cut it, so what can you do? So... Is it ever explained, and it could have been explained, I just missed it, but is it ever explained why Megan is able to, you know, be human and then stay human for this whole time and then turn into werewolf? Is it said in the movie that any of these werewolves could turn human when they want to, or what is it? Because I thought, was, from my understanding of, you know, werewolf mythos, is that once, you know, full moon's up, then they just turn into these werewolves and they don't really have a choice. They're, they are turning into these werewolves and they won't turn back to human until the sun comes up the next day. There's varieties. It wasn't explained in this movie, okay. um, but I, ever since the werewolves showed up in Vampire the Masquerade and the, the, the white wolf stuff, um, they've kind of 
split off a bit uh, and done variations on it. I mean, like the Anita Blake werewolves, they'll shift with the full moon, but you know, the stronger you are as a werewolf or higher up in the pack or in a, or if you're alpha enough, you can resist the change longer type of thing. My take on it was that maybe she was either the originator or she just was really strong. That was just my takeaway from it. But okay. that's that's me bringing other meta knowledge to the film to to watch it. So, right, right. But uh, usually that's you know like when they're when they're just mindless killing machines. Usually, yeah, they they change when the full moon goes down and that's it. Mm-hmm. But like Bitten, the Bitten TV series, they have a lot of control over when they change and when they don't change, and it's different. You know, depending on what you want to use with it, I guess. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. That something i wish was explained more with as dialogue heavy as the film was i feel like something like that could have been mentioned there along the way but and but then it also makes sense that she was acting as if she didn't know much about these werewolves and so yeah there could be that too but the other thing i really loved about the film was which you know it's clearly a a lower budget film but they have all these explosions um like the barn blowing up i just thought was really cool and the uh the car blowing up they were able to do a whole hell of a lot with a two million dollar budget i was very impressed He, he likes to make things go boom too Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. uh, Yeah. I like watching things go boom, though, so I don't have a problem with that. And um, you were talking about the in the car. He opens the back trunk and then all this gallon, these gallons and gallons of blood come pouring out. And he's the werewolf is sitting there eating his head. I there may have been too much blood yes but i really love that scene i thought the effects were really cool with the severed head and everything i it was just another another scene that was really well done for me and another reason why i really enjoyed the movie just layer upon layer of cool special effects and solid acting chris were there any specific moments or scenes where it kind of took you out of the film where you you started liking it less or you started liking it more not really i mean it kind of just starts off kind of cheesy poorly and you know that kind of set the mood and then like i said once the night living dead aspect comes in like from there on it's a completely like the one-liners are spot on it's like a totally different tone and i noticed that with like his other movies too like he tries to mix a little bit of everything into it Maybe a little too much mixing there. I'll save it for the descent, but <laughs> no, that that's about it. That, I mean, it got better, and I think I enjoyed it more this time than the first time I watched it. Okay, still not saying it's good though. Gotcha. Tying the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, you have that that silver knife. I guess werewolves can touch silver, even in in human form. Is that is that true? Again, it depends on. (laughs) I've seen ones that they've had where you know they can't even touch it, and other ones where it doesn't hurt until it's you know shoved in them. It it, again, it it just depends. They didn't do a really good job explaining them here, but from the soldiers' point of view, they don't know a whole lot about the werewolves here either. Right. Yeah. So, Chris, what do you give Dog Soldiers out of four stars? I'm going to give it a two. Okay. I think that being generous. I, originally, I probably would have given it a one, but the second half is definitely like leaps and bounds better than the first half. And what about you, Ash? I'll give it a three, partly for the nostalgia factor, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's still a lot of fun to watch. It's just there's a couple moments in it that kind of, and later viewings that kind of sit off with me, but for the most part, I really liked it. Yeah, and I really, um, as probably is evident by my discussion, I really enjoyed it as well. I liked it a lot the first time and i think i liked it even more on this second viewing i thought the what i really noticed this time around was the acting how great the acting was and the uh the special effects are just a lot of 
wow, that was badass, you know, moments for me. And I really like some of the cinematography, like I was talking about, with how they're able to make the werewolves seem larger than life and creepier than I have seen them in the past, especially in like Cursed or American Werewolf in London. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I gave this one three and a half stars. I love the characters. I like the dialogue. I thought it was really well written as well. So from Dog Soldiers, we have this clearly a hard R action horror film. We move into Neil Marshall's second film, which again, uh, it was written and directed by him. So The Descent stars Shauna McDonald, Natalie Mendoza, and Alex Reed. And let me go over the plot synopsis of this one. Juno, Sarah, and Beth are on their way back to their hotel after a White River rafting trip when a disaster strikes in the form of a car accident. In the head-on collision, Sarah loses both her husband and her young daughter. A year later, Sarah is doing her best to move on with her life and agrees to go on a cave diving expedition that Juno is heading, along with Beth and three other friends. Holly mentions the fact that the cave they are set to explore is nothing more than a tourist trap and thinks it'll be boring for the group to explore. So the next morning, the group sets out to do their spelunking, and it doesn't take long before Sarah gets trapped in one of the narrow passageways of the cave. The passageway starts to collapse on top of her as she is just barely pulled to safety. The group quickly realizes that this is not the beginner's cave that Juno had promised, but it is rather a cave system that the group believes has never been explored before. And Juno wants to explore it in order to name it after Sarah. They are now desperate to get out of the cave alive, so they head through the cave and eventually come across this ancient painting that they decide to pick a second exit for the cave, giving them hope of getting out alive. Soon after, they come across their first mutant creature and realize that they are not alone. The group gets split up in a fight for their lives against the mutants, and some deaths incur, including Juno accidentally stabbing her friend Beth in the neck and then leaving her to die. All along the way, Sarah's mental state starts deteriorating, and she starts having visions of her daughter holding a birthday cake. She goes crazy on the mutants, killing everything in her path, and eventually comes across the dying Beth. Beth tells her not to trust Juno, creating a tense moment when Juno and Sarah finally reunite. Sarah gives Juno one chance to tell the truth when she asks her what happened to Beth, but Juno says that she saw her die. This sends Sarah over the edge. She strikes Juno in the leg, leaving her to be eaten by the mutant creatures as she makes her way out of the cave, or so we think. Once she gets out of the cave, though, she starts driving away in her car, and eventually she'll stop the car, and she's letting the whole tragedy sink in. She turns to her right, and there's Juno's figure sitting in the passenger seat. This scares Sarah awake, and when she wakes up, we find out that she is, in fact, back in the cave, and she looks forward and sees her daughter there with the birthday cake, and then the film comes to its unhappy conclusion. Now, if you watched the American theatrical version of The Descent and haven't seen the unrated original version, that ending might sound a little different. Chris and Ash, which which ending did you guys watch? Did you watch the ending I just explained, or did you watch the theatrical ending, where the theatrical ending ends with her in the car, she turns, sees Juno, and then the film ends right there. And so it doesn't, it leaves out those final, like, whatever it is, 60 seconds of her actually being in the cave. Which which ending did you guys watch? I watched the uh, British version. Okay. UK version, yep. This was, like, the first film when I found out that there could be multiple endings to a movie. Uh, just something that I never, like, I never realized that was a thing until until The Descent. And when I saw it in theaters, obviously, like every U.S. You know, theater goer, I saw the ending where she makes it out of the cave. And then she turns and sees Juno, but she's out of the cave. So what happens next? I don't know, but she's out of the cave. Where in the original version, it's a much bleaker end. It's a much darker end because clearly her mental state has deteriorated to the point where she's seeing her daughter right in front of her. The camera kind of zooms out and she's in this cave system. <laughs> Clearly, that's where she will take her last breath. 
I really like the original ending a lot better than the than the U.S. ending, even though it is very very minor. It just it concludes the story in a much different way. Ash, what are your, some of your thoughts on the descent? Some initial impressions. I really like it. The UK version, especially, is a very it's a very Brit horror film. <laughs> no happy endings. That's usually their their thing. Did it remind you at all of like the thing? Where you have this ending, these two men are alive, but one of these, you know, men could be the thing, one of them may not, their base is destroyed, they really have no hope of survival. It reminded me a lot of, of the ending of the thing as well. Yeah, a little bit. It does. And the rest of the movie is very different, but yeah. I like the dark themes to it. I like the way it's shot. It has this, you know, the very dark feeling to it when they're down in the cave. But it's not like the relic. You can still see what's going on. <laughs> but it, they take pains to make sure that, you know, they can't see. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you get that to come across. But at the same time, it's it, it's not where, you know, they didn't bother to light anything. So you can't see what's going on. So I, I like that. I liked the characters. For the most part, it, w- it bucked the trend of, you know, putting these detestable people in these horror movies and gave us some decent characters to like even before they go off to die. <laughs> so <laughs> there is that. I don't know. It, it definitely starts off on a on a note to let you know bad things are going to be happening and then just kind of goes from there. Yeah, that opening scene and it always strikes me every time I watch it you know, they're driving down the highway and then they have the head-on collision and the pole goes straight through her husband's head. They don't I don't recall at least them showing it enter the little child but clearly the pole, you know, hits the child too and they're both dead and it's just so bleak and, and dark way to start a movie and it always gets me every time I watch it. Chris, what were your initial impressions with uh, The Descent? You know, I didn't care for the first few times watching it, but um, this time I watched the Underground Edition. And then, you know, it has like the picture in picture. And it was really cool because, you know, Neil Marshall's there. He explains everything. It shows you different angled shots as you're watching certain scenes. It shows you them like auditioning and trying out the scenes and figuring out like who should sit where on the raft, stuff like that. And I didn't realize they like they handcrafted the caves because they couldn't find any that suited them. Oh wow. So they built all of those caverns that you wow. see. That's impressive. So I mean, yeah, like stuff like that. And he's very passionate and you know he's he's a really good writer yes he is i think more so now I, I wouldn't even say he's a bad director but he's definitely i think stronger at the writing i think the descent is one of his uh, of the four is very um straightforward he's not too genre meshing in it i don't want to say i like it but uh, it's pretty good um <laughs> i definitely don't like the ending <laughs> I definitely don't like the ending. I think it's a cheap shot to, um, you know, show you one thing the whole movie and then kind of change it up on you. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, like, you never know that it's her killing everyone and that the creatures aren't really real. At least that's what I've gathered. That's what you... Oh, Oh, okay. So, okay. So your take on the film is that, is that, uh, Sarah is the one doing all the killing and that the mutants don't exist? Yes. I'm pretty sure. I don't remember the sequel very well. Or the sequel's all. terrible. Don't even bother. Oh, I like the sequel. I thought it was good. That was was my assumption was that she was the one killing everyone and that the creatures weren't really real. Okay. I did not. I I could be way off on that. Well, I mean, it's, you can't really be wrong. It's just your interpretation, right? So, I mean, I didn't get that at all, though. I, I, or it's clear to me that they are two separate entities. Because if Sarah is the one doing all the killing, then Juno, when she meets up with Sarah at the end of the film, she wouldn't be so uh, happy to see her. Or, you know, even though she's not exactly, you know, showing her face that she's happy to see her. But you know what I mean? Like, she would be 
uh, terrified of her because Juno seen these people get killed throughout the earlier, you know, throughout the earlier parts of the film. And at one point, Juno even says after the mutants or after some of the killings start happening, which happen in front of them, Juno, in fact, Juno kills a mutant and then turns around and accidentally stabs Beth in the neck. And then she leaves and she makes the comment to the other two friends that she's not leaving the cave without Sarah. And so if Sarah was doing these killings, I feel like she would be like, fuck Sarah, I'm out of here, you know? Um, so that, I don't know. I never, I don't know. That's the first time I've heard that interpretation. That's interesting. Ash, what do you, what is your, what is your take on it? I always assumed that the creatures were real. I didn't get the whole high tension vibe from it. Right. But I mean, now that he says that, uh, possibly, but I don't know. Uh, eh, I, I guess it could work, <laughs> but the, uh, I think the, the the very end where she she stabs the other girl in the leg though to leave her to die with those things is a little different uh, it takes on a different meaning i guess but yeah because after she stabs her in the leg she you know takes off and then juno looks like she she looks around like she moves her head back and forth looking around because all these mutants are are appearing and so i feel like if that was the case then you know juno would have had to her mental state would have to be deteriorating as well and i never really got that through through the rest of the film i don't know i could just be crazy (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's definitely an interesting take on it like yeah the ending for me what it shows is the because you so after she gets in the car accident at the beginning of the film what happens she is in the hospital but what is the first thing we see we see this you know black outline or like this black screen and then these lights kind of come into focus and it's the birthday cake that we see and so i feel like they put that fact that she's seeing her daughter in visions right in the beginning of the movie and then she gets trapped and she's pulled out and she kind of like faints or whatever she hits the ground hard and faints and she has that vision of her child again and then it happens, I think, one more time throughout the film before finally, at the end, she wakes up from being in the car and there she is in the cave and she sees her daughter there. It's kind of, you know, showing, from, to me, it was showing that her mental state was just decaying, was deteriorating throughout the whole film. And now it's at the point after she's, you know, just killed her once best friend because she found out that her husband and her were having an affair. And now she's done. Like she's snapped. She's completely gone. She wakes up and there's her daughter. She's has a smile on her face. So clearly it's not, it's not a dream, but she has a smile on her face and she thinks that she sees her daughter in front of her. And obviously that, that can't be possible. And so then the shot, you know, backs out and you see her in the cave still. And I don't know, just to me, it was a, a deterioration of the mental state and the fact that she may be alive, but she's definitely not getting out of here. So that's that's definitely an interesting take, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's not something I never really thought of before. But let's go back to more to the beginning of the movie where the film, excluding that opening opening scene, where the film really takes its first turn for me was when uh, Sarah gets stuck in that small passageway. That moment for me is one of the most tense, and and not I think it frankly is the most tense moment in the entire film. The way they're able to film that, it just, everything felt so goddamn small and claustrophobic. The second that the characters start up that, in that small hole, it just kills me. And then when she gets stuck there, I just like, my breath is, is going, it's real shallow breathing at that point. Like I'm, my hands are sweaty. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm physically sh- like moving in my, in my seat that I was watching it in. Like I hate that moment because it's so claustrophobic and it's so well shot that moment and and it gets me every time i watch it like it's just 
it's one of the best moments in the film for me. There's a lot of that in this, I think. And uh, I think the way they shot it here works a lot better than I think it did in The Descent 2. I mean, they feel like two different, entirely different films. I mean, same characters, but different films. Which is interesting. They had the same director of photography. Different director, but... I uh, Yeah, I, I don't know why. It just I remember when I saw The Descent 2, it was like it doesn't have the same impact. But yeah, the uh, that definitely gets to me. I think one of the things that I remember, and I remembered it when I was playing Tomb Raider, uh, the remake, <laughs> is uh, in the new Tomb Raider game, there's a shot where Lara ends up having to go through a river of blood, basically, and she comes mm. out of this just covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And that shot was like lifted almost, it, the way they shot it is lifted almost directly from the descent in that one scene. And I remembered that when I was playing the game, I remembered back to that shot in this movie. Uh, when she comes up out of that pool of blood and just, yeah, uh, that stuck with me. That still sticks with me. Just the look on her face and, and, you know, the realization of where she is type of thing. Yeah, that's an incredible moment. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Any any particular moments that stand out for you? I, I'm a bit claustrophobic myself. I don't like tight spaces. I definitely get that feeling, but, but the, the first time I saw the movie, I actually bought the Region 2 DVD because it came out like before it even hit theaters here. Right, yeah. So the only way I could watch it was on my computer, so obviously you lose that aspect. And I almost wish I'd seen it in the theater. I think that might have changed my feelings on it. Yeah, I think, and there are some movies where, you know, seeing it in theaters is, at least seeing it in theaters first is going to, you know, leave a different impression on you than otherwise. Any cons, anything negative that kind of stands out about the film? Chris, you might have something, you know, specific that might stand out about it in, an, in a negative light. I don't overly care for the ending, and I think it takes away. Um, I don't like either ending. <laughs> yeah. You know, the American one just cuts off a little too early, and the British one is just it's a little too much of a downer, but I don't know. I mean, it's a decent movie. There's nothing, like, horrifyingly, like, terrible about it. The sets are nice. The acting's good. The girls aren't too bad to look at. I don't know. It's it's decent. The, the creature effects are a little meh at times, but... Oh, man. Really? I... Some shots. Some shots look pretty Ugh. rough. <laughs> I don't know. I got to disagree there. I thought... I, I, I can't think of a moment where I wasn't like, wow... I fucking love these mutants. I think they're just disgusting and awesome. The one thing that stood out, clearly they had kids. They had why, like, you know, female character uh, mutants and they had children mutants, but none of them, like, are they wearing clothes? Like, why? I don't know. They feel like they were covered up from their, you know, their, their private areas. And it's like, I, not, not that I, I need to see, you know, dick hanging around while they're flopping about. You know what I mean? But like, it just seemed why a little not? strange why to not? me. <laughs> it just seemed strange to me that they have like, I don't know, they have some sort of loincloth or something, but maybe they just reproduce in a different way. <laughs> but the one thing, one thing about this movie, which I really only noticed on this viewing, and it kind of like, it made me lower my IMDb rating a little bit, is the fact that I think the cinematography is excellent, but there are moments where they just have these, it's like a, a freeze frame. It's this weird framing of, of the character, like they're, you know, it's usually like an oblique shot, which is like a you know, like a sideways shot and which, you know, is supposed to represent that something is imbalanced. And they have these these shots and they'll show either Sarah's character staring off in the distance with this like scowl on her face or Juno with her headlamp on and, and with her axe right up next to her face looking off. And it's like 
you can pause the moment right there and you have like an awesome publicity shot, but it just seems they seemed out of place to me in the movie. And after I saw the first one, I noticed that they just kept happening. I don't know, every five minutes, every 10 minutes, whatever the case is, but they just had these random like still frames almost. They weren't obviously they weren't actual still frames, but they seemed like still frames or there was very little movement going on and they I don't know. They really took away from the rest of the story that was being told. It was like the the DP said, I'm going to use this moment as a moment. And it just didn't work for me. It just felt false and, and forced. Any other closing thoughts on The Descent before we move on? I think, you know, for a second outing, I think this was a lot more solid, I think, than Dog Soldiers was. Just the way that, you know, the plotting and, and uh, how fast he kept things moving and, you know, things along that. As you mentioned with Dog Soldiers, it kind of drags a little bit at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, They have a lot of dialogue to go through. And there's not as much to chew through in this one. And there's still some decent, you know, dialogue throughout. It's just it's a much better paced film, I think. Which is interesting because the first mutant creature doesn't actually appear until 45 minutes into the film. And so I think that's just a testament to Neil Marshall's writing where he's able to have these other other events occur, like the, the cave collapsing and uh, the car accident at the beginning of the movie. So he has these other events occur where it doesn't feel like you're waiting on the horror movie to start. And I think that's a testament to Neil Marshall's writing, which, you know, we've already talked about is is quite excellent, I think. So with that in mind, Ash, what do you give The Descent out of four stars? I'm actually going to go uh, with a three and a half out of four for that one. Okay. And what about you, Chris? Wow, I'm I'm torn. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Let me judge here. I can't do higher than 2.5. I almost <laughs> want to, but I can't. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say this one is a 3.5 as well. I think, you know, he completely avoids that sophomore slump that you hear about, and he makes a genuinely better film than Dog Soldiers. The writing's excellent. The pacing is is really well done. The characters are all engaging. The scares are impeccable, which we didn't even really talk about the scares. Um, but I think some of the moments where she has like that that the video camera and she has the night vision on and and she's turning. I remember the first time I watched this with Bridget. It was in the basement of my parents' house, and she lit like literally let out a a scream, a vocalized scream, which I've still never you know heard repeated while watching a horror movie before. And so you know this definitely had an impact on us as when we were watching it, and it's one that I will continue to always recommend, and I really enjoyed it. All right, so the first two of Neil Marshall's filmography are definitely horror films, even though they are you know different types of horror films. They're definitely horror films. So now we're gonna hit Doomsday, the 2008 film, which again written and directed by Neil Marshall, starring uh, Rona Mitra, Bob Haskins, the late great Bob Haskins, Super Mario, Bob Haskins, and David O'Hara. Um, so Doomsday is the post-apocalyptic story of the Reaper virus, which is spread throughout Scotland, causing the British government to seal off the entire country with a large wall. Years later, the Reaper virus reappears, this time in London. The Prime Minister John Hatcher has held evidence for 20 years that there are survivors in the quarantine zone, so he sends in a group of police officers to try and find a cure for the virus. He sends in the group, led by Eden Sinclair, to find Dr. Kane, who was last known to be trying to find a cure for the virus. The Prime Minister and his lackeys believe that if there is a cure to be found, Dr. Kane will be the man to get it from. So the team makes their way into the quarantine area, only to discover that there are tons of survivors and they don't take too kindly to strangers. The first group the team meets up with is a Road Warriors-esque street gang that is all about sex and violence, led by the batshit crazy Sal. Sal believes that these people are the answer to his quest to get him and his people out of the quarantined area. 
and after a massive gunfight and uh, some time in lockup for Eden, a few remaining survivors of the original search and rescue team make their way out of the gang's area and back on the search for Dr. Kane. But during her lockup, Eden happened to meet Dr. Kane's daughter. So uh, she helps the team find Dr. Kane. And when they finally reach him, it turns out that he is now the leader of a tribe that has gone back to the medieval times. And they have, you know, sword fighting and gladiator-like games for prisoners and, and so on and so forth. Kane refuses to help the team and another major battle ensues, leaving even more people dead, with Eden narrowly escaping with only a few friends left alive. Then there's a final chase scene between Saul and Eden before Eden finally delivers the cure in the form of Dr. Kane's immune daughter to the Prime Minister's right-hand man, Michael Canaris. Eden records her last conversation with Canaris, where he tells of his evil plan to let the virus take over the city and withhold the cure for political reasons. The recording is given to the news outlets, and the bad guys are taken down. So that's Doomsday. One of the main reasons I think I avoided Doomsday for so long was because it got such a lot of negative press. I don't, and I don't really know if it was negative press when it first came out or if it was afterwards, but I remember hearing a lot of negative things about the film, and that that may just be me, but. I think that may be a reason why I avoided it so much up until this point. But like I said, I, I've owned it for a while and I've always wanted to see it. So I was very happy to watch it. It was pretty much bashed upon when okay. it came out. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't just what you heard. Like everyone seemed to hate it. Okay. So yeah, Chris, what are your what are your thoughts on Doomsday? Initial, initial impressions. It's kind of like Mad Max, but it's not. <laughs> what you're shown in like the trailers and everything gives you the idea of Mad Max, but it starts nothing like that. <laughs> Like it starts with that like modern day futuristic city. It starts off as like a like I'm thinking I'm about to watch like a, a zombie movie almost like a, a virus movie like quarantine or something or wreck. I, I like the way that it starts and I do like the movie mm-hmm. and probably one of the few who actually enjoyed <laughs> it when it came out. And you know I had someone over and uh, while I was watching it and they they actually stopped and were like that's a really good picture and the Blu-ray really does look great. I was kind of surprised by that. Would you believe that Sam McCurdy was the cinematographer for Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Doomsday, and Centurion? I, I think it's that's amazing because Dog Soldiers and Descent just have such a different feel than both Doomsday and Centurion. But I think they're all four have excellent cinematography. But I'm just surprised at how different it is and how different uh, McCurdy's able to do all four films. Ash, what are some of your initial thoughts? I didn't get the Mad Max vibe from it at all. I actually got Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. vibe from it. I mean, it has almost the exact same structure plot-wise. Okay. Uh, something bad happens at the beginning of the movie. They quarantine off a section of the country. It turns out that something that they need happens to be in that quarantine section of the country, so they send in somebody to go retrieve that. They meet a bunch of hostiles on the way there. They get to the person who's supposed to give it to them, and the person they get to them is kind of an asshole. <laughs> And they end up on a chase to get the hell out. <laughs> so that, you know, it, it's basically like the UK version of of Escape from New York with a much bigger budget. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is what what I got out of it. Even even with that, I think I liked the movie. They did a lot of neat things with it. I like the throwback to medieval England. There, mm. the, the castles was fantastic. Just like the the way they they set up some of the the vehicle chase scenes, and then even uh, a lot of the fight scenes were really well done. The way they thought them out, I liked the lead character. She was fantastic. I thought she was. I mean, she was basically playing the role of Snake Plissken, but nothing like Snake Plissken other than the fact that she completely fucks over the guy that was ultimately responsible for sending her in there in the first place. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, you know, it just uh, that 
I liked everything. I actually hadn't heard anything bad about it, so I kind of went in blind okay. on this, uh, and I ended up really liking it. I think my favorite aspect of this is how incredibly well they're able to do kind of these like three different time periods these three different um settings you have the you know the quote-unquote present day even though it takes place obviously in the future but it feels more present day than what the rest of the film is going to present and then you have the kind of futuristic you know road warrior mad max vibed post-apocalyptic gang with the crazy ridiculous like mohawk hair and just like the you know sex and violence and and cannibalism um it's what i think of when i think of like dystopian gangs and that is just so well produced so well thought out and then you finally you have the medieval times which is just absolutely stunning to look at the sets that they build for it are impeccable and the um the costume design i rarely would i go do i go into a film and then talk about the costume design but um like i was talking about with like the hair and makeup of the of the futuristic kind of dystopian gang and then the costume design for the you know medieval times is just excellent i think that's probably the most impressive aspect of the film for me is how it's able to make three distinct time periods for me at least distinct time periods and then have each one be living and in, in interesting and in, and vibrant in its own way. I thought that was that was really awesome. So we start off at the beginning of the film. We got Emma Cleesby, who plays Megan from Dog Soldiers. She is the the mother, Eden's mother, who gives up Eden to the soldiers and is like, "Give her my this envelope, this addressed envelope, so she knows, so she doesn't forget." But like the whole, the end of the film is where things kind of take a turn for me because you have this this character of Eden who's clearly you know is is desperate to remember her mother because she says like she can't even remember what she looks like and so uh she uses this opportunity to at the end of the film to uh go revisit her childhood home and, and see a picture of her, her mom i don't know it just didn't feel like it felt out of character to me from what the rest of the film was building it's like she's just this incredible badass which i understand like it, it gives her a heart at that point you know it makes her human at that point but the fact that she went back to her home and and to see that just felt a little too sentimental for me I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like the little sentimental thing just before she drives over to the other gang and <laughs> the road where it right, basically yeah. assumes command. <laughs> she throws the head down. Oh, I love it. What the hell? I forget her line, but she tosses the head down and then repeats whatever the line is that is said to her earlier in the film, and then they start cheering. I thought that's that was that was a cool finish. One thing that we have in this film, which we don't have in Dog Soldiers of Descent, but we will get in Centurion, is the voiceover. Which the voiceover, I, I believe, is done by Malcolm McDowell, who later will play Dr. Kane in the film. So you have the voiceover setting up like the, the exposition of the story. So you, you, we're finding out what has happened in the past 30, I think it was about 30 years, like 28 to 30 years. We have that in Doomsday, and then that'll play a big part in, in Centurion as well. And often when I hear of, when I think voiceovers in film, I always have like negative connotations around it because I feel like a lot of people just don't like it. They feel like it might be, I've heard it called like a cheap way of, of giving exposition. But I thought for, for both these movies, I think actually it works, it works really well. It's, it's a quick way to kind of set up the past 28 years or 30 years, whatever it is. And, uh, then it, it shoots us right into the film. And I really, I thought, I thought they did a really good job with it. 
I want to talk a little bit about that. Not the very opening scene, but like the, the opening present day, we'll call it scene where she is with her, with her partner. She works for like the, probably like the equivalent of like the, the FBI or whatever. And she is trying to, they're trying to get this guy and the guy's like, he, he comes out alive. He comes out alive. And she's like, well, your call. And, uh, they go in and they have like these exploitation characters almost. Like you have the, the naked girl in the tub reminding me of like, like a Nazi exploitation film. She just has these big giant boobs and she looks <laughs> Like, I don't know, like she could be straight out of like a Nazi film from like the exploitation era from the 70s. And then you have fucking uh, Foxy Brown grabbing the briefcase <laughs> and she runs out and gets shot. I thought that was hilarious. They just have ridiculously stereotypical characters. I, it could have been really stupid, but I thought it was really funny. I really liked it. Did you guys notice that at all? Or uh, No, I, mean, I missed it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I noticed like, the boobs, but. Right, how would you not? Yeah. <laughs> I also really liked Rona Mitra in, in the Eden role. I thought she was excellent, like you were saying, Ash. And Bob Hoskins was also, he was fantastic as the, um, like the, the chief or whatever his, his role was, like the, the leader, basically. The guy that plays the current prime minister, Mm -hmm. he's actually, uh, Julian Bashir on Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. One character that I didn't really care for, and not because the script was written in such a way for me to not like him, which it is, and I don't like the character itself, but I just didn't like the actor playing him, and that was the Prime Minister's right-hand man, David O'Hara, as Michael Canaris, who's the the bad guy, you know, at the end of the film where they she records him having that conversation at the very end. Every single line is spoken in the exact same tone. Like, it's very monotone. And I could barely fucking understand him. Like, he wouldn't open his damn mouth. Which I understand, like, that's the the dialect. But still, clarity of speech has to trump reality to the dialect that's required of you. But that bugged the fuck out of me. I just, I couldn't understand him. It's like, just open your damn mouth. Did did you guys have a problem with him at all? Or is that just me again? Uh, I didn't have a problem understanding him. I didn't like the guy, the character, Mm -hmm. at all. He just spoke slime ball to me uh, right from the start right <laughs> it's like oh yeah he's the guy we're supposed to hate yeah. <laughs> um, he is i the one thing i i did think he was really kind of soft-spoken compared to the others mm-hmm. but at the same time he had this kind of like a little bit of menace to him i don't know you think he's up to something every time he every time he opens his mouth so i thought that was interesting but I didn't really have a trouble understanding him, but he was a little soft-spoken compared to everybody else. The one line I really liked from him was after Bob Hoskins shoots the uh, the like infected guy in that sneaks up into the into their office. He shoots him, and it, like the blood squirts through the door and gets the prime minister in the face. And, and after they like lock the prime minister up, which will then go on to kill himself, the character turns to Bob Hoskins and goes, "Nice shot." Like, I thought that was awesome because now clearly like this character is now going to take over. And so he's he's happy about that. I thought that was well written and well, well played. I really enjoyed that moment. Another aspect I liked a lot, well, like you were talking about, Ash, was the, the choreography. The fighting choreography was really well done. That fight scene between Eden and Saul's girlfriend or whatever it is, which ends with the decapitation. That was that was a really cool fight scene. Like there was just a lot of really good fight scenes in it. I think my favorite it was actually later in the film when they're in the castle and they put her against the guy in full on oh. armor. 
And yeah. that was just fantastic. I loved that. It was such a cool moment. Yeah. And the movie builds to that moment really well. It does it really quickly, but it does it really well because they, they make clear that the second that character starts like coming up on horse, the two people who know him, Dr. Kane's daughter, um, she's, or I think it was only the one person who knows him, but Dr. Kane's daughter's like, oh, that's so-and-so and that's his mercenary or whatever the hell he called him, his executioner, I think it was. And so like they build that this character is this big evil thing right off the bat and then she just goes in there and kicks his ass it was just really really cool i enjoyed it it was pretty things go boom people die it was like mindless entertainment definitely better than i expected yeah so you called it mindless entertainment i think there's a point where it becomes mindless entertainment and that's kind of where it loses me a little bit which is kind of what i'll transition to now but the first three quarters of the film, I think, are really done quite well. And I think they're more than just mindless entertainment. And because, and I would say that because of the fact that, you know, there's an interesting story being told with this Reaper virus. I feel like if they maybe um, expanded on the Reaper virus more, it could have been like a smarter film. But clearly he's making an action flick with a lot of booms and bangs. But the point where this, the film lost a half a star because of this moment on. They're escaping from the medieval uh, guards and whatnot from Dr. Kane's territory. And they find this Bentley. Thank you, product placement. And then they find these cell phones. And so this is going to set up the final chase, the final chase scene. Um, so uh, continuity wise, she is watching her, her friend. He's getting shot in the back with the arrows, which... I've never seen an arrow shot look more convincing than in this film. Every time an arrow entered his fucking back, like, I had a twinge. Like, it was, I don't know, it was a sound effect or if it was just the depth of the arrow when they showed it. I don't know, but it was an awesome arrow shot. But anyway, after she watches him die, she kind of peels out in the Bentley and she squeezes through the closing the closing doors. But then if you look at the Bentley, nothing's wrong with it when clearly the whole fucking side should be destroyed. So just continuity that bugged the shit out of me because there was nothing wrong with the with the car afterwards. No, um, it's a Bentley, man. It, they don't they don't yeah. they don't scratch. They, they don't do anything. No. <laughs> um, but then the chase it does get beat up during the and then the next scene though. Yes, <laughs> it does. Um, and then that scene happens, and it is just the most insane, like unrealistic thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Fuck it, the guy is. Is first off, it's hilarious because Saul's driving down the road with his dead girlfriend's body kind of like just stuck together. The, the decapitated head is just sitting on the rest of the body. And it, it was, that's, that was hilarious to me. Um, which I mean, it was supposed, to, I think it was supposed to be, but then he kind of, he, he jumped, like he's driving the car. All of a sudden he gets out of the driver's seat. Some way, somehow the car is maintaining its speed and he's able to jump into the passenger or, well, no, it's Britain. So he's able to jump into the driver's side of the car and it just starts. I don't even know. Like I was waiting for him to like bite people because it was just so silly and they're just smacking him and hitting him. I, I thought it was ridiculous. And then and then it just continues on with more craziness and just explosions just for the sake of explosions. The car hit a body and it expl the car exploded. I'm like, what the fuck? How does the car explode by hitting somebody? Like, well, I think he hit a motorcycle attached to the body, if I remember right. But okay, I, you might be I right. But even still, yeah, the, it just exploded. But that was, yeah. you know, at that point, I figured we were playing by Michael Bay rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, continuing on to the end of the movie with the recording of it and yada, yada, yada. It just felt like it ran out of steam before the final 20 minutes for me. I found the last chase scene so too ridiculous, I guess. Did that bother anybody else? No. No? Mm, not 
I I thought some of the some of the parts with the the lead dude of the of the the gang were a little mm-hmm. over the top, but uh, and for the most part, uh, oh. I made me want to buy a Bentley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh. but I and uh, I like that it wasn't just a gunfight with you know them driving down the road with them shooting behind behind them trying to get them away from her and they she actually like engaged them the only way she could at mm-hmm. that point. It was kind of an anti Bentley ad really because you have these old ass cars that are <laughs> beat to shit. They're keeping up with this Bentley. I'm like, you have you can't possibly be going as fast as this Bentley will allow you to go. Why are you not fucking thirty feet ahead of them already? Like thirty miles ahead of them. And then the last part that that was like really they have the bus. The guy the guy drives the bus, he like does that that swerve thing where you get the bus like going uh perpendicular to the road to block the road and she's driving straight into the bus playing chicken with the bus clearly the bentley versus the bus the bus is gonna win but some way somehow the bentley hits the bus and flies over it not over it completely but like goes through the top of it instead of going through the bottom of it like it goes through the top of it and it just didn't make any sense. It's like, why is this car flying? Like, it, I, I didn't get it at all. And it's it, a oh, Bentley, man. <laughs> Bentley. Well, the, the only thing I could think of uh, was because they pop open those doors to fire off those, like, saw blades. Oh. Whatever. See, I thought that maybe the car hit that and ramped through it. That was the only explanation my mind could come up with for that. Yeah, that could justify <laughs> it. That could justify Okay. Yeah, I mean, it could, but the whole bus exploding right afterward. Right. No, <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, aside from those final that final chase scene, and even putting that in, into perspective, in this movie you have like a f- badass opening scene of the of the wall being kind of overtaken, and then you have a badass shootout scene when the search and rescue group meets the like futuristic gang for the first time. That's a, an awesome long shootout scene, and then you have a badass. Uh, hand combat scene with the medieval times and then you have a well an okay but you know to a lot of people it'll be a badass because there's a lot of explosions car chase scene and so this movie it just it has so much going on in it and it's just a lot of fun to watch i really i enjoyed it a lot but it went from three and a half stars down to three stars for me just because of that final moment. It was just like the first, you know, that first weird thing happens. You're like, oh, okay, I can let that go. That's not a big deal. And then the other one's like, oh, okay, that's a little strange. And then another one is like strange. And then, and then he jumps in the fucking car and, and then the other guy jumps in the other side. And it's like, what the hell is going on here? And then the bus explodes and I, it's just, okay, this is too much. I did like the sign on the bus, though. Not <laughs> fucking service. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. So I think we're all in agreement, at least on this one, that we all enjoyed it a lot. Um, Chris, what do you give this one out of four stars? Uh, a three. Solid three. Awesome. And Ash, what do you give Doomsday? I actually give it a three out of five just because I, I love this kind of homage to Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. and kind of doing it different on the way they did. So, Did you say a three out of five or a 3.5? A 3.5. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I like I already mentioned, I gave it three stars. Um, it was three point five until that final moment, those final few moments. I think like the sentimentality of the final moment of her going back to the house, it felt out of place, and then it felt even more out of place when the next scene is her dropping off the head of Saul to the gang and being like, "I am your leader." So I gave it three out of four stars. Before I before we do make the jump to Centurion, I have to make note that Doomsday 
was the first film where I was like, holy shit, there is a lot of blood in this movie. And I think that was the first one because it wasn't, it was the first non-horror film. Dog Soldiers, it's a horror movie. I'm expecting a lot of blood. The Descent, it's a horror movie. I'm expecting a lot of blood. But Doomsday is a sci-fi dystopian film. Like, I wasn't expecting nearly as much blood as there was. But wow, there's a lot of bloodletting. And then you hit Centurion and it's like, whoa, it gets even crazier because it's a Roman action flick. And a lot of those you see sanitized more so than, than the way Neo Marshall approaches it. But as we'll talk about, I like Neo Marshall's approach. So let's jump to Centurion here, the 2010 film. So Centurion stars uh, Michael Fassbender, Dominic West, and Olga Kurilenko. In AD 117, the Picts are perfecting guerrilla warfare and the Roman garrisons are struggling to keep up. In true Pict fashion, they storm a Roman camp and Centurion Quintius Dius, who's played by Michael Fassbender, is the only survivor. They take him prisoner because he can speak their language and they hope to interrogate him. But he's a Roman and he will not yield, as he says. I love that line. Uh, he refuses to talk, so they throw him in jail, which he is easily able to escape by like kicking the wall is kind of what I got by it. And so at the same time as that's happening, the Romans dispatch the Ninth Legion to try to take out more Picts. Uh, the Ninth Legion is led by General Titus Flavius Virilis, and he's given a mute female scout named Attain to help him. The Legion marches north, and they come across uh, Quintius Dias, who, running from the Pict soldiers, and they save him from what is sure to be his death. So the next day, they set out to attack the Picts, but it turns out that Etain is in reality a traitor working for the Picts, and she has led the Ninth Legion right into a trap. So the battle wipes out the vast majority of the Ninth Legion, and all but Centurion, Quintius, Dias, and a few others are left alive. They set out to rescue the general, who was taken prisoner by the Picts. So they hunt down the Pict camp, um, but unfortunately they can't save the general in time, and so they're forced to flee. Um, in the process, one of the Ninth Legion members kills the Pict leader's son, and this death prompts the Pict leader to send Etienne after them, uh, ordering her to bring him their heads. The film then becomes a manhunt of sorts as the Ninth Legion tries to make their way back to friendly territory with the world's best tracker right on their tail at all times. Eventually, the Ninth Legion is down to the three remaining members, and they decide to stop running and fight. Quintius Dias is able to get the upper hand over Etius, killing her, and then he makes his way back to the Roman camp where he tells of his story. Here, the Romans decide that this failure must be swept under the rug for fear of other legions attacking them. So they attempt to murder the quote-unquote war hero, Quintius Dias. Dias senses the upcoming attack and manages to escape, injured, back to a woman he met earlier where her story will continue, but the film will not. So, this is another one I heard a lot of negative things about, and because it's a, a subject matter that I generally don't give a shit about, I never really watched it. I don't normally watch movies like that are set in this time. Um, the I think, I don't even know. Like, I've watched Alexander the Great in theaters, and everyone knows how that went. I actually liked it, but aside from that, I just don't really spend much time in this, in this uh, you know, era, in this genre of film. So, my initial thoughts on this one, I... I don't know. I really loved the film. I thought it was just bloody awesome. There are some things I didn't like, like the uh, CGI blood, especially in that first opening battle. There's just tons of CGI blood, which I hate CGI blood. Um, but fortunately, the CGI blood is kept to a minimum and the real blood is not. And so we get tons of bloodletting, which is always fun to watch. Script wise, I think this might be my favorite of the four, just uh, the, my favorite script of the four. I think it does a lot of things really well. It has those slow moments, 
but the slow moments are kept engaging because of the incredible dialogue and just these incredibly likable characters. You have the one quote unquote traitor or bad guy, whatever you want to call him, from the Roman Ninth Legion. But aside from him, everybody else is very likable in the group. And the general is just a very charismatic actor and he does really well with it. Uh, Michael Fassbender is incredibly well cast, as uh, Ash mentioned earlier. Just an enjoyable, an enjoyable film. Ash, what are your initial thoughts on Centurion? I really like this one. I tend to like period pieces on occasion. I'll especially watch them if they have a good cast. I initially actually watched this one the first time because of Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Uh, it was like I watched it right after X-Men First Class came out uh, is when mm-hmm. I watched it. And I was like, I love this guy. I got to see more movies with him in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of why I picked this one. The uh, And I know I'm going to butcher her name, but she was in the Fright Night reboot, Emojin Poots. Yes, yes, it. yes. I love her in this too. The It was an interesting storyline. I particularly love the little siege they do with like three versus <laughs> you know, <laughs> the invading horde type of thing mm-hmm. uh, and trying to get that organized and do all that. It's a, I thought it had a very different feel from his other movies. Actually, I probably wouldn't have even thought that I didn't even realize it was from the same director, to be honest. Um, but I hadn't been looking at the director who directed it when I watched it. So no, I I really enjoyed this one. They they he did some neat things with it, and I thought the cast was fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Before I interject, let's go to Chris. Chris, what were your thoughts on uh, Centurion? <laughs> Apparently, the complete opposite. Um, I was <laughs> bored both times that I've seen this film. It took me three to four times to get through it. Like I would just pass out, fall asleep. I just don't find it interesting at all. I mean. I love Michael Fassbender and like everything. I don't know what he does, but he does it and it's always good. <laughs> but God, it was boring to me. I, I don't know. <laughs> it took me like two days and multiple attempts to make it through the film. <laughs> now, do you normally like period pieces like this? If they're well done. Do you have an example of one that you really like? This sounds horrible. I really enjoy Gladiator. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why. Oh, oh yeah. I, don't I, know I like Gladiator too. Disowned. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. I have the soundtrack for crying out loud. (laughs) The other period piece I think of, like I said, I watched Alexander the Great in theaters and I liked it. Like, I legitimately don't remember a damn thing about it except like the giant elephants putting their big front legs in the air. That's like all I remember from that movie. But, um... The only other piece I think of is 300, which I absolutely fucking love 300. That's Oh, I love 300. But this is, it's similar to 300 in all like the the bloodletting and the violence, but... And Michael Fassbender. Yeah, right, (laughs) right. But I I don't know, it just feels like it has a different vibe to me though, overall. Yeah, you were talking about Imogen Poots. The first time I saw her was in 28 Weeks Later. Awesome, awesome movie. And she was fantastic and and she's just stunningly beautiful. Um, So I was really excited to have her in the movie. And she was excellent in this as well. But talking about how beautiful Doomsday was, I think Centurion is even a step above it the landscapes that they were filming in it wasn't uh green screen it was all shot on location and they built sets for it when they needed to and the uh this the, the cinematography was was absolutely beautiful there was moments where you know all you're seeing is just empty landscape you know empty these these empty mountains and it was always 
fun for me to watch because it was just so damn beautiful to look at. I think the the mute character, the the female mute character of Etienne, I thought she was fantastic. And all the emotion that she was able to bring to her character and all the um like just emotional depth, I guess I would say, and the emotional life that she was able to bring to this mute character, I thought was really fantastic. After that first siege, you have the like the second battle, and it starts off. They uh, they hear a noise. I think they like hear like the 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 picks chanting or something. It's what it sounded like to me, and so they all they stop and they like hunker down. I guess is I don't know what else to call it. They they get in formation, and uh, the like the general says, you know, uh, whatever comes out of that fog or that mist, be ready and don't surrender. And then the first thing to come out of the mist is the fucking fireballs. These four giant balls of fire. That was so cool. I was like, wow, this movie is fucking awesome. And that was only like 15 minutes in. That was, that's a definitely a key moment for me where the movie took a turn for the, for the, for the good. I was like, hell yeah, this is going to be awesome. One thing I really liked about the movie also is how it's able to set up such distinct failures. And still make us, uh, you know, root for these guys and, and, and hope for, you know, a, a, a happy ending. The, you know, the initial failure with trusting Etienne and then she t- is a traitor. Um, and then they try to rescue the general and they get there. They spend all this time. They spent, you know, 10 minutes of the movie, 15 minutes of the movie just simply getting there. And then they're finally there and, they just can't get the chains off of him. Like, it seems so, like, silly to me at the time. It's like, what the fuck did we just spend this time getting to the general if you're just not going to, to if you're not going to rescue him, if he's just going to get killed anyway? But as it, as it continues on, obviously, the reason that they do that is to set up the whole rest of the film because that's the catalyst for the rest of the movie. And I thought that was, I don't know, that was just a really a really cool way to, to set it up because you're expecting this. They're going to go in, they're going to rescue the general and then the movie's going to, you know, continue on. And, and from that idea, but then it just kind of changes. So you're, you're 20, 25 minutes in and the movie takes a completely different turn. And now they're being hunted as opposed to just the random guys that are trying to get back to their group basically. And then the, the failures just continue on. They have the, um, they're trying to go, they need to go North or they need to go South, but they're going to go the opposite direction first to try to lead them off the trail and then work their way back around. And, that completely fails because of the fact that they're being hunted by Etienne. And then they they get to they they do the killing of Etienne and they, they get to the um Roman safe house, basically, and the only other living good guy gets killed, and then they're at like it's just failure after failure after failure, which sets up the end of the movie really well. What did you guys think about the the love connection, the love story that they add in that you kind of get 45 minutes away through the film. You're talking about the one between Imogen and Fassbender? Yes. I I liked it. I wasn't what I was expecting, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was expecting her to just kind of be like like a, a way station type of thing. You know, he spends a little time there and then takes off to his thing. But no, I, I didn't think it was too bad. Uh, I actually like that part of it. And it, it sets up the end of the film too. you know, where he ends up. I thought it worked. Yeah, I did too. I really liked it because I, I, I genuinely thought that that was going to be the last time we saw that character after they left. And then it was a surprise to me that he would, that the end happened where he was going to be killed. And I didn't expect that at all. And then he ends up going back to her, which as soon as he said, she's like, where will you go? And he's like, where I belong. I knew, obviously I knew where he was going, but. I love the line that opens the film and the line that closes the film. And uh, it's Fassbender's character saying, this is not the beginning of my story, nor is it the end of my story. 
I think it opens the film really well, and then it closes it perfectly. So I, I don't know. I really like that. Like, sure, it's a little, little sentimental, which I didn't like in the last movie, but it just felt it felt uh, more natural in this one. I thought it was a nice bookend, and the change in dialogue is is interesting because mm-hmm. uh, it starts off, you know, I'm a Roman soldier, and and it ends, you know, I am a fugitive of Rome. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. I forgot about that part. The whole thing felt so anti-war to me too. By the time Quintus Dias was walking up to the gates after his friend had just been killed. He's just the, the, the sense of defeat and the sense of, of worthlessness to the whole thing. And he, you know, he asks, then what did we fight for? All of that. I just, I don't know. I felt so subtly anti-war and I thought that was really interesting. Chris, do you think it was extended dialogue that, that made it seem slow or boring? Or do you think it was just pacing issues or is there anything that you can pinpoint to to what didn't do it for you were just the characters or i think it was just a mix of everything that and i've just been tired but um yeah i really don't know the dialogue was just a little bland in the beginning of the movie there's just way too much talky talky maybe i was expecting like action i don't know it was slower than i thought it would be at first and then it just even the fight scenes just uh, i don't know it just all kind of just (laughs) <laughs> knocked me out i don't know <laughs> uh, had a hard time it was a rough one to get through both times both times that i've actually watched it definitely my least favorite so that said what would you give it on a, a out of four stars probably like one and a half okay and what about you ash i really like this one i i don't think it's perfect uh i'd, I'd give it a three and a half i think it it's probably out of his four films this one stuck with me a little bit more than the other ones i think but i i, I like this one too it, like you said it's beautifully shot and just kind of sticks with you yeah i'm definitely with you on that one i also give this one three and a half it's a much different movie than any of the other three so it's hard to say that like this is my favorite but I think script-wise, it's my favorite. I think it's the best script out of the four, and I think it's the most well-shot out of the four. I also think it's the most uh, ambitious out of the four in the scope that it's trying to encompass and the um, the fact that it's not not a horror film, which is clearly you know where his, his roots lie. But like many directors, he could have just been using horror to get into the genre, but listening to like uh, commentary tracks or interviews with him, it, that doesn't seem to be the case at all because he's clearly a big horror fan. Uh, he always references Alien, uh, The Thing, you know, all these different classic horror films. John Carpenter, he's a big John Carpenter fan, always puts references to John Carpenter into his films, things like that. So definitely give this a three and a half out of four stars and uh, just really enjoyed it. And excited to watch it again to see if there's, you know, anything else that I may have missed the first time around. Cool. So that is our our first director's retrospective. Was there anything now with that with that said now that we've done that we're done talking about the specific films, is there anything kind of that stands out to you guys that you can pinpoint as a Neil Marshall film? Let me give an example so you can kind of tell what I'm talking about. One thing that I think Neil Marshall does in in all of his films is he over edits, specifically in his fight choreography. I think his fight choreography is excellent. Whoever the choreographer is that he hires for his movies is is fantastic in in all of the films. But something that always bugs me is over-editing. I want to see the actors work. I want to see the stuntmen work as opposed to seeing the editor edit, which I think he edits all his films. I know he did at least Dog Soldiers, but I think he does all of them. And you have extremely quick cuts. Specifically, it really got me in Descent doomsday and centurion and centurion just because those were you know there was a lot more fights in those ones that's one kind of 
negative thing I can find about him is that I feel like I wish he would let his fight scenes play out in more real time as opposed to cut, 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 cut. Because there's just a hundred cuts in every fight scene he has. And I don't know if you guys may, you guys may not have noticed it or it may have been perfectly fine for you, even if you did notice it. Um, that's, that's obviously fine, but it's something that bugged me as someone who always watches for something like that. So that's something that kind of sticks out to me as a, as a Neo Marshall thing. Um, did you guys, did you notice that at all or did that bug you at all at all in any of these movies? It, it didn't really bother me so much because they're still watchable. He doesn't mm-hmm. do the shaky cam quick edits. Which I absolutely despise. Michael Bay does it in a lot of his movies. They'll, they'll be shaky cam all over the place. And that's like, edit, 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 edit. And it's like, it's too hard to follow. You know, I have no idea what you're watching. But, uh, I didn't think it was that bad because it, uh, the camera's, it's panning move and moving normally. It's not all over the place. So I could understand the quick edits there. I'm trying to think of other movies that have that problem. Oh, Chronicles of Riddick has that problem in almost every single fight scene that they go hand to hand in, in Chronicles of Riddick. It's like shaky cam all over the place and mm-hmm. edit, 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 edit. You know, <laughs> it's like, ah, um, but no, I didn't, I didn't really catch that there. I, I don't mind the quick edits as long as you can tell what's going on. It, it, it's when they, they're shaking the camera everywhere just to get that frenetic pace. And if they were doing long shots with the frenetic camera movement, I could deal with it. But it's just when they start editing all over the place, that bugs the crap out of me. But no, I didn't, I didn't have a problem with these. Any final thoughts on, uh, on Neil Marshall, Ash? No, I think he's got, he's got a lot of, even when he's being over ambitious, he's got a lot of, uh, good ideas uh he sets up his shots pretty well even when he's even when he's going camp you know when it comes across as campy it's, it's not like intentionally being bad it's just maybe just too much of one thing or another no i like his, i like his dialogue it's always pretty good and uh you know he brings a lot out of his actors in all of his films you know they're not they none of them seem to be phoning it in type of thing right yeah that's one thing i definitely noticed from him and you mentioned it earlier as well but just the fact that he's able to bring out the best in the actors that he has. He's always able to get believable, engaging performances, which is really hard to get, uh, you know, can be very difficult to get as a director. And you don't see it as consistently as I see it in these four films, even with, you know, the $2 million dog soldiers versus the ultra big budget Centurion. So very, very impressed with his ability to get the best performances possible out of his actors. Clearly, Chris is going to disagree, but... I can, I can now safely say and proudly say that Neil Marshall is undoubtedly one of my favorite directors out there. I love all four of his films and I wish he would do more. Like his, he's, he's kind of moved to television. His, his last couple credits are a black sales TV series, which I never even heard of, probably a UK show. And then Game of Thrones, two episodes there. And now he's filming a Constantine TV series, which I loved Constantine. And then he's, uh, listed as attached to the Skull Island Blood of the King, which I don't even know what that is, but there's no date for it or anything. So I just, I want to see him do more because I really, I really enjoy his films. Yeah, I think overall it's a pretty um pretty impressive filmography for him. I'm very pleased to have finally spent time with all four films and uh excited to that we got to talk about it. So um thank you guys for allowing my indulgence of the Neo Marshall retrospective. I know <laughs> Chris sarcastically thanked me on Twitter earlier. 
but I think it made for uh, made for an interesting interesting discussion. So yeah, could have been worse. I mean, I don't know how, but I, I can't think of like a really <laughs> bad current like director, but. <laughs> I mean, I, it equaled out pretty like average. My rate right, there, so. yeah, awesome. So that is our Neil Marshall retrospective. Then that was uh, definitely call that a success. So that's great, Chris. Where else can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Wolverine Factor. And Ash, where else can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at dhgf ash on Twitter, and I also am on DieHardGameFan.com. Fantastic. And you guys can find me at Simon1, P-S-Y-M-A-N-1, on Twitter. Or you can email any questions, comments, or concerns. Maybe you completely disagree with Chris's hatred of Centurion or my love for dog soldiers. Let us know about it. Contact us at contact at cinefessions.com. You can send any questions, comments that way. Or you can always hit us up at the Cinefessions Twitter page, which is simply Cinefessions. Yeah, so as always, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time. I hope I give you the shit, you fucker.